Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com. Woodhill Community Center. Have a hand in the heart of the city. Support their mission with your donations at WoodhillCommunityCenter.org. Toyota in Nicholasville Superstore. Online consultants are standing by right now to help you find your next Toyota. Visit ToyotaOnNicholasville.com. Lexus of Lexington. Home of the best-selling Lexus IS. Find yours today at LexusOfLexington.com. Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. Welcome to Connecting the Dots. I'm your host, Mark Shea, and we are here today, as we are here every time we podcast, to talk about life, the universe, and everything from a Catholic perspective. And today it is my pleasure to have my good friend, Mr. I almost said Mr. Deacon Stephen Gradonis. He is the uh, film critic for the National Catholic Register, and he is the owner and proprietor of DecentFilms.com. We thought we would have him on the show today to, you know, talk about the big summer movies of 2018 and, of course, tackle the big questions like, what are vampires anyway? I have given a lot of thought (laughs) to this question. More thought than any normal person has given this question. See, I knew Uh, I could count on you. I don't know about normal person, Uh, but (laughs) I. Well, this came up today, and I thought, see. I've heard various theories. You know, vampires are demons who have taken control of a human, a dead human body, or that. But that seems to me to not comport with the whole idea that vampires are damned souls who are being punished for their transgressions by being forced to, you know, uh, live this half life, neither human nor dead. And uh, so I thought. There's only one person really that I want to hear from <laughs> to, to help resolve this question. And who better than a deacon of Holy Catholic Church? Well well, so, first of all, let's 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 dispel this this notion of demons as damned souls because it, it may be true that whoever was the original demon or whatever original demon patriarchs of various demonic uh, lines there may be demon uh, v- vampirism can have I been saying demon all this time you, vampirism uh, okay v- vampirism can can affect anyone so you can be a good innocent pious person and if you are bitten by a vampire under the right circumstances you will become a vampire right so um uh, well, that's there's the cowardly car- fair 
Well, it's not fair. You know, life is full of all kinds of things that aren't fair. <laughs> Vampirism is totally unfair. <laughs> okay, you're right. You're right about that. So, so um, uh, Lucy uh, Westenra from the original Dracula novel is an example. She is a very sweet, good girl, and she became a vampire. And um, then later, you know, they they killed her according to the proper methods, and her corpse retain it went back to the the purity and the goodness and the innocence of the pre-vampiric lucy okay so so yeah vampires vampires are i i think the idea that in the traditional <laughs> it's, mythology it's it's rough justice when you think about it but you know still i mean yes you know. <laughs> i mean I, I i i think the idea that of the the soul of the vampire that the essence of the vampire is a demon inhabiting the 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 person's body is is a plausible one, but okay. I I have an See, idea. I, well, I was thinking about like like you know the original vamp, vampire. Right. So Dracula. I mean, the reason Dracula is Dracula is because he was a terrible person, and then was cursed by right some means or other, and that's why he's Dracula. And so he's suffering, you know, for. For his evils, but it, yeah, it's hardly fair that that Lucy has to has to suffer that as well. But uh, so, so anyway, well, the, the whole idea of the vampire has bothered me for a long time, and and it's because the vampire combines these two attributes, which are in principle from a Christian worldview antithetical to one another. On the one hand, the vampire is wholly evil and destructive. That is entirely evil and destructive. Right. There's nothing good or redemptive in a vampire as such. On the other hand, the vampire is always attractive. Okay. And that's true. One of, I, I think I would have to say one of the most fundamental tenets of my imagination, my religious and moral imagination, going back to my youth, to my uh, the Christian cartoons that I drew when I was in college, and and even before that, is the idea that um, evil is only parasitical. That evil cannot create anything. It doesn't do anything of itself. It can only take goodness and twist it. Right. And so evil can have some kind of attractive power, but whatever is the attractive, whatever is the attraction in evil in principle ought to be rooted in some kind of good. You know, so, for instance, uh, a, a person is tempted to commit adultery. But what is it that they what is what's attracting them to the act? Is it, is it the person's attractiveness because sexual attractiveness is a good thing? Or is it love because love is a good thing? Or is whatever it is, there, there's something the person is always seeking something good in the pursuit of sin or evil. Well, and we speak of, you know, even the tradition, we speak of the glamour of evil. Right, right. But but unmasking the glamour of evil was the it was the kind of the task that I set myself in thinking about the vampire. And when I was in high school, I read a book by George R. R. Martin called Fever Dream, okay, which offered an interesting take on the vampire mythos. It was um, set in the um, um, in the South uh, on the Mississippi River. Vampires on the Mississippi in the days of, you know, Mark Twain and so forth. Okay. And um, the vampires in Martin's 
story were a little different from the traditional kind. For one thing, they don't have the usual allergies to silver and mirrors and religious artifacts. And while they are, the sun, sunlight is painful to them, they can go out in it and they can endure it for a while, but it does burn them and they don't turn into ash. And, and the, but his biggest departure was that vampires are another species and they cannot turn you into them. Okay. That's a myth like the others, but it's a myth that the vampires foster because it suits their purposes. They attract kind of, uh, uh, hangers on and, and toadies to, to do their will, whom they promise that at some point they will elevate them to the vampire condition. Uh, okay. And among these is, a vampire called Joshua who wants to live a different way. He's come up with a concoction of animal blood and other substances that will allow him to get by without eating humans. And another vampire, the evil one, Julian ridicules him and says, he's like a human wannabe. He's like, you know, he's, he's denying his true nature, his true self. Okay. And on the premises of the novel, I found it hard to argue with this. Okay. I mean, where where does a creature like this fit into a Christian worldview? I, I couldn't think of a way. I couldn't. I, it, it didn't make sense to me. And so I, I thought, how can I, as a Catholic, think about vampires? <laughs> a, a noble task to set yourself. Well, and, and, and it, well, what I... I began thinking about vampires and the analogy of demons, and it seemed. To, and then I asked, "What if the vampire is not a thing, but a fallen version of something else?" So, what if there's a creature that's not like Joshua, a, a bad creature that's pathetically trying to be good, you know, or like Angel and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, a, a, a vampire with a soul, something that is t- sort of has a semblance of humanity and, and part of humanity, but is not truly human. Um, what, what if, but what if there was something else and that was had the, the power and the attractiveness and many of the other exotic attributes of a vampire, but wasn't evil and therefore wouldn't drink human blood, but would have to do something else. And this is what I came up with. Okay. Suppose that there was a very special religious order, like an order of monks with a divine mission from God, all right? Okay. And suppose that in view of their special mission, they enjoyed a kind of a quasi-transfigured state. So they're immortal, and they... Um, have their, they have various physical attributes approximating the attributes that St. Thomas uh, ascribes to the resurrected body, agility and subtlety and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and what if instead of drinking human blood, their mission calls for them to subsist entirely on the Blessed Sacrament? And then from among this religious order, a perversion occurs. A certain number of them fall from this pure way of life. And in because of this, 
they are no longer the, the former, the relics and, and the, the religious symbols and so forth of their religious way of life are now odious to them and, in fact, physically repellent. Um, and the only thing that they can do to survive is to drink human blood. Okay. So a friend of mine and I um, put together a plot for a story that involves a, a class of vampires who do the thing from the George R. R. Martin novel where they have uh, they, they promise people that, you know, we, we can make you like us. Um, but it's not really true. And one girl becomes disillusioned and she tries to run away to a church and the vampires chase after her. And she runs to this old parish priest that she knew there, but suddenly he's like transformed and he turns out to be just as powerful as the vampires and he fights them off. And, and she, she thinks that he's like a renegade vampire. And he's like, you have no idea what I am. And and then over the course of this, the story, it turns out that, um, these vampire, the, the, the monks from whom the, of whom the vampires are the fallen ones, uh, are guardians of the Holy Grail. And, um, their order goes back to the apostolic times and it turns out that the, the first among them is actually St. John himself, who actually never did die. Like it almost quite, but not quite suggests at the end of John's gospel. And the leader of the bad vampires turns out to be Simon Magus. And it goes from there. Well, okay, that's interesting. See, if you put your mind to it, <laughs> you can. but 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 what was what makes this satisfying to me is the underlying idea that only goodness is truly attractive. And so I want to look at the vampire and say, what is it that we find attractive in the vampire? Well, they're powerful. Power isn't evil. They're charismatic. Charisma is not evil. They're graceful and ancient and seem to have hidden knowledge. And none of these things are evil. What's evil is that they drink human blood. Okay. But, right. but what, if they, what if they didn't? What would that look like? And, and, and this way, to me, we baptize the idea of the vampire and place it in a larger Christian context that, um, uh, for me, kind of debunks the the idea that you referred to before the glamour of evil debunking the glamour of evil um is is for me the underlying impetus in this whole thought experiment okay now there there was a question i was going to ask which i have just lost track of uh (laughs) so never mind but um um it's an oh well that was what i was going to ask so what what becomes of their victims? Do they? There's oh no, yeah, they like, they just die. They just die. It's a lie. You can't you okay. can't get there from here. Okay. The only way um a vampire is to is to have belonged to this religious order and and then to have fallen from it. Okay. All right. I, all right. If you wanted, you could jigger that with something about. I don't know. Yeah, okay, never mind. Um, that would be genre mixing, and we don't want mm-hmm. that. That would be bad. But, uh, all right, okay, so well, we've resolved that. So, you know, um, people can sleep tonight um, knowing that that issue has been put to bed. 
Um, but but you know the the reason that this came up, of course, is because on Facebook we were talking about this new movie, The Nun, which is in this series of films, this kind of the spin-offs of The Conjuring. Okay. And this whole kind of confusion between in in our conversation, demons and vampires, and what are they, and are they damn human souls, and so forth. And and in the Conjuring movies, I mean, the Conjuring and the Conjuring Two are both. Um, very much informed by a Christian worldview. Um, and well, it's got nuns and priests and everything. I mean, yes, yeah. Um, um, but the spinoff films, the the Annabelle um, spinoffs, and now there's this movie, The Nun, who's a, a demonic character that comes from the second Conjuring movie. Um, and, and these films are not written by the same people. The, the authors of the of the conjuring movies are Christians and the authors of these other movies are not necessarily. And I, I have the feeling that some of the underlying Christian ideas are, are getting lost. And so what can only be described as a demon in the original conjuring movies, you know, now what is it? Is it a ghost? Is it a damn spirit? Is it something incompatible with Christian imagination? Who knows? Okay. Well, you know, it, it proves once again, you know, nobody ever makes, you know, exorcist type films uh, about Nebraska Missionary Alliance folks. I mean, it's, it's always Catholics, right? Somebody was going, Romania? What are there, like five Catholics in Romania? <laughs> An Eastern Orthodox friend of mine was, was commenting on these movies. And uh, it's like, it's it's just a Dracula vibe. Just go with it. You know, don't worry about these kinds of details you know but he was heavily overthinking this and um so all right well i i that's not a movie i'm going to go see at any rate um not big on uh not big on too many horror movies although i still want to see a quiet place yes um, and and it's now out on home video or at least it's coming is it goody yes i've been sort of waiting for, for it to show up on amazon prime or something you know so i can watch it when my wife is not in the room. My wife does not like scary movies, and she really does not like scary movies that involve children. Um, there are famous moments in our family history of her crying out to warn uh, little children on screen of danger in crowded theaters that uh, uh, are, are moments of lasting joy for me. But uh, she she doesn't like those things. So I will watch A Quiet Place by myself or with my kids, but uh, not when Janice there. But uh, let's talk about uh, – Quiet Place has been out for a while now. But uh, let's talk about uh, some of the other uh, films that are out. Now, I haven't seen it yet, but my hope is that uh, Jurassic Park Fallen Kingdom will, will be the new Citizen Kane of um, – <laughs> spin-off movies from uh, giant franchises that may even surpass Independence Day resurgence in its greatness. Well, why don't why don't we start off with Incredibles 2? All right, let's do that. I love that movie. It was fun. Um it is fun. Uh, I I saw it with Suzanne and uh we both really enjoyed it. She loved it, and on the way home, as I began doing my kind of critical thing and taking the movie <laughs> apart, just she, she, got, she got so mad at me. She said, this is why people hate film critics. 
You suck the joy out of everything. <laughs> yes. Well, it's your job, you know. You have to do that. But uh, it but, was. But before we say anything else, let me just. There is one thing I want to say. It's not. A, it's not a, a criticism of the film per se. But if you have anyone in your life, or if you uh, have epilepsy, do oh, not yes. do not go see Incredibles two. So if if you're susceptible to like <laughs> strobe effects and and flashing lights, there's there's um, yeah. if that triggers yeah. a migraine or a seizure, do not go see Incredibles two because it's got a lot of that. It does. Well, quite a bit. I don't know about a lot, but quite a bit. Enough. Um, yes. Yeah. But, but, but so right. let me just say, first of all, that being, you know, with with the soul sucking, joy destroying job of the film critic mm-hmm. also comes the exquisite pleasure of praising the truly great films to the skies. So. As a critic who can tell you what is wrong with Incredibles 2, I can also tell you what is right with The Incredibles. All right. Go for it. And The Incredibles is absolutely one of the greatest movies ever made. Certainly one of the greatest animated films, one of the greatest family films. It's a masterpiece of surprising, really astonishing depth and complexity among the many things that it does. It celebrates and even mythologizes marriage, parenthood, family life, um, kind of following a little bit in the footsteps of Spy Kids a few years earlier. But then it also goes beyond that to explore more complicated emotional territory, uh, uh, disappointments and uh, disillusionment in uh, in family life, the struggles and, and the possibility of, of marital um um, you know, lack of communication leading to deception, leading to suspicion and concerns about infidelity and even various kinds of unfaithfulness without actually venturing into adultery. Um, and, and all of this in ways that are both very emotionally complicated and yet also accessible to even very young viewers, which is really kind of mind blowing when you think about it. Mm hmm. That a movie yeah. could do all these things. It, it <clears throat> yeah. celebrates our heroes, but it also cross-examines them. You know, Mr. Incredible's hubris and kind of cavalier attitude uh, really is responsible. You know, first of all, in the beginning, for the for the uh, you know the way that he treats the the life of the man that he saves, the the potential suicide, the attempted suicide. But then also, Syndrome is is really a creature of his own failure to be kind to his young admirer. And it's, it really is, I mean, you think about how, you know, people who have lots of admirers and followers and how you treat these people, the repercussions that they can have in their lives. It's, it's a really interesting and provocative take on that kind of relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And I can just go on and on and on. Yeah, it it is. It's such a great movie. You can watch it a million times and it's one of those movies. uh, Yeah. I have a, a short list of movies that when they're on, I'll just drop whatever I'm doing. And I, I'll watch this again. I've seen this 20 times. I will watch it again anyway, because I just love this movie. And that's one of those movies that I would watch anytime. 
you know. And I love, you know, just by the way, one of the things that I love about it is it's. I remember somebody, well, the the authors of uh, creators of Babe described the world of Babe as some place a little bit to the left of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And the world of the Incredibles is some place a little bit to the left of the 50s or the 60s. Yeah, I, I think that's about right. It's yeah, it's just, and I would I would say early sixties. I'm thinking. Right. Yeah, yeah, and and so I enjoy that vibe, mm-hmm. uh, just of watching that world and going, that is a world that I remember mm-hmm. that never existed, <laughs> but sure. I still remember growing up in that world. And uh, so I, I enjoy it for that reason too. Um, which, and and that world is. Very much front and center in Incredibles 2. It's, it's, it's got a vibe that's, you know, there's a little bit of like Sean Connery era James Bond yeah. in, in these movies, yeah. but then also a little bit of like the retro futurism of the Jetsons. Yes. In the kind of the angularity of the design and, and the, uh, the aesthetic. Um, and, and, and the dialogue between the 50s and the 60s is present in, you know, on the one hand, the the uh, kind of naive, optimistic, uh, looking up to heroes and authority figures, but then that gets right. cross-examined in the manner of the early '60s. Yeah. Now, some people have accused Brad Bird of having a kind of uh, uh, an an Ayn Randian vibe, a kind of uh, an objectivist exaltation of the specials, the creative people, um, the right. the 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 makers rather than the takers and right. kind of and and I I mean I can see why people say that I don't think it's a fair criticism of either of the Incredibles movies I think I think I could see it maybe a little more in Tomorrowland I I know that you in particular um this is the uh, the whole uh, Ayn Rand thing is a particular um um Kind of a, a she's done a lot of damage. Me, so, <laughs> so, so, uh, what do you think about that? Do you have any thoughts about that? I, I do think that that is, that, certainly that's something that that comes up, and uh, you know, I, there's the there's a famous exchange between Mrs. Incredible and Dash, you know, where she, you know, she recites the the parental mantra, "Everyone's special, Dash," and you know, she even she doesn't believe that. Right? <laughs> you can tell it from her tone of voice. Uh, and then he says, you know, which is another way of saying no one is. And, and, uh, and Syndrome is, he is the voice of egalitarianism. Uh, and it's not a, it's not a nice voice. <laughs> he's, uh, you know, he's the, the clearly inferior and envious. Uh, who also, by the way, though, uh, uh simply, Syndrome's only problem is he doesn't happen to have superpowers, but he's still a towering genius. Sure. You know, and doesn't seem to appreciate that fact about himself at all. Uh, so there's this rankling envy uh, that has completely consumed him, but it's also <laughs> driven him to become a super villain who's invented all of these ridiculous devices and, you know, lives in a volcano for crying out loud, you know? And, um, so it, the, the question is, it, it, is it really, uh, 
not the case that everyone's special. Uh, for, you know, bringing back to, you know, uh, your project with vampires, uh, mm-hmm. you know, of, of bringing this into a Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. Paul's theology of the body says everyone's special. Uh, that, that is the, that is, we're not talking about John Paul's theology of the body, which is, is, uh, dealing with other issues. We're talking about St. Paul talking about the body of Christ and how God has given unique gifts to every single member of the body of Christ. Uh, so that those who appear to be less important are in fact more important in Paul's theology. Uh, so the Corinthians are after superpowers. They want, you know, they've got certain gifts that they really envy. Uh, you know, speaking in tongues seems to have been a big issue for, uh, the Corinthians and various other, you know, miraculous gifts and so on and so forth. You know, but Paul will go on and say, uh, you know, not everyone has, uh, you know, the, 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 Charis of, of miracles or healing or, you know, or, or that sort of thing. Uh, value whatever gift you've been given. And that's the mistake that Syndrome has made. It's not that Syndrome is not gifted. It's that he doesn't appreciate his gift. Because he wants Mr. Incredible's gift. I'm, I'm reminded by your comments of the famous concluding lines of C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory, which I'm looking at right now. Go ahead. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Uh, All day long, uh, we are to, well, okay, I'm skipping a little bit here. Um, um, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, Art civilizations, these are mortals, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we, whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's, you know, whatever Brad Bird may be saying. And by, by the way, I just, I, just a, a brief moment here to pause yet again to praise Brad Bird's performance as Edna Mode. <laughs> I love Edna. And Edna Mode truly is, and she even looks like Ayn Rand. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, she's actually, she's inspired by uh, Edith Head, the, the legendary Hollywood oh, designer. Okay. Okay. Very good. But, you know, she truly is, you know, I designed for gods, you know, and she's just, I mean, she's, She's just fabulous, and I love that she's, you know, a foot and a half tall. Uh, but um, his performance as Edna Mode just fills me with joy every time I see those films. Uh, she, she's just a fantastic character. Well, I think it's worth pointing out how the theme of specialness, um, which is a notable theme throughout all of Bird's movies, uh, plays out in at least in his earlier work, in, in The Incredibles, in Ratatouille. Uh, we, these are movies that are about people with special gifts that, that put them above, people who can do and think and achieve things that not, other people not only can't do but can't even understand. 
Um, you know, that like how Remy, his, his family doesn't even understand what it's like to be able to smell and to taste and to approach food and to have the relationship with food that he does. Mm-hmm. And yet there is, I think, a, a wholesome and a winsome um, um, humanism to these films. Right. So, for instance, uh, Remy prepares food that no one else can prepare, but he prepares it for ordinary people. It's it's food that everyone can enjoy. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Incredible saves ordinary people who really need saving. Mm-hmm. And the, what they do is it's it's for themselves, but it's also for the benefit of of everyone. And and that sense of mission I think is um is is what for me at least what saves bird's work in these better examples from the from objectivism now in tomorrowland uh, which is was his um uh live action movie that he made for disney uh i i called it in my review a um uh a, a secular faith based film <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Because of because of how it kind of first of all it 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 diagnosed diagnoses our culture as having an obsession with apocalypse and with dystopia, which is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. And you know, and, and I, I think it's gotten worse since Tomorrowland came out, rather than better. Yeah. Uh, and he he really the movie looks to the visionaries and the artists and the. Uh, the, the gifted people of the world to, to save us from dystopia. But <laughs> it really has no interest in people who aren't gifted. And it, um, um, it, it, it just, it, it has, this is, this is the movie where I think you really see a preoccupation with special people to the point of having indifference toward ordinary ones. Mm-hmm. Um, the the idea of in this this is a world where artists dreamers scientists are are called to live apart from common folk and and they're you know they have their utopian creative uh, freedom and um, I mean I, I guess at some point it trickles down and the rest of us benefit from it but yeah well and that really is a that really is a Randian. Uh, yeah, I think so. Idea, you know, I I don't know his relationship with Rand. If he's you know one of these fourteen year olds that picked up, you know, Atlas Shrugged and was never able to put it down or or what. Uh, but certainly, I think that this is a theme. It shows up in all of his movies. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it shows up in the Mission Impossible uh, film that he did. You know, because again, you've got a group of specials, uh, the IMF team. You know, and they're grappling with, you know, uh, uh, their place in the world. And, uh, but in the Incredibles movies, you really do have, you know, there you've got a, a group of specials who are struggling with the fact that they're specials, you know, and you do have, you know, th- there's, there's a world that appreciates them still. Uh, but most of the world has rejected them. I mean, that's why they, they've gone underground. They've, you know, they've had to renounce their secret identity. They have to listen to Wallace Shawn talk about how an organization <laughs> is like a great clock. And, <laughs> you know, and, and by the way, uh, you know, <laughs> Wallace Shawn's character is just another 
fantastic performance, and I just love that guy because he's so repellent. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and so you do have, you've got the case being made uh, uh, at the beginning of the film for why ordinary people are, are terrible people. You know, they're all Wallace Shawn, or they're all, you know, the lawyer, you know, uh, who screwed up a perfect life, you know, for all the supers and all of this stuff. Uh, well, but, but some of them, some of them are, you know, the the widower, widow, the widow on a fixed income. Well, exactly uh, right, and that's you know? the thing is is, uh, is that's the other side of it. Um, is that we're not just given, you know, ordinary people are all terrible people who can't understand supers. You also have, you know, people who are really <laughs> grateful because you saved their cat by uprooting an entire tree, you know. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And so, um, uh, uh, anyway, uh, let's talk about Incredibles. Or are you done praising the Incredibles? Do you want to talk about the Incredibles, too? Well, so in a way, I think we've been we've been kind of um, circling around it. I, 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 there's a lot going on in The Incredibles too that engages some of these same themes that we've been talking about, and in in particular the the celebration and and mythicizing of the family uh, is is definitely here. You know, it's, this is not just a movie about a bunch of people with superpowers who happen to be a family. It really is about the family dynamics and and family unity, um, and it's about stress in relationships and overcoming that and so forth. Um, I think some of these themes get kind of sidetracked along the way. So, for instance, in the first film, where Mister Incredible, um, he kind of gets on a, on a on a sort of an ego trip. He's uh, called away from his family and from his ordinary life by this mysterious benefactor, this employer who sends him off to engage in these uh, uh, incredible heroics. And, and for him, this is, this is reliving the glory days, but he's keeping secrets from his wife and he's missing out on moments in his family life. He is betraying his primary responsibility, which is to be a husband and a father. And he has to realize that he has that wake up moment in syndrome's trap um, where he he confesses his shortcomings to his family. So here in The Incredibles 2, there's another wealthy benefactor who comes along. And this time in one of those sort of Pixar sequel reversals, they ask Helen Elastigirl to be the poster child for their campaign to rehabilitate supers. And so she's the one who goes off and saves the world while Mr. Incredible Bob Parr is left at home with the kids. Right. And so he, he, he struggles through gritted teeth to express his support for his wife. But what is, what's his motivation there? And what is it? In the beginning, and where does it go in the end? What what he actually says is, I have to succeed, that is, my Mr. Mom challenges that I'm facing, so that she can succeed, that is, as an ambassador for superheroes, so that I can succeed, so that I can return to being my great self, Mr. Incredible. And... Noble. (laughs) Yeah, well, and, 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 and he doesn't... 
really grow from there. We don't get a moment where he realizes that as a husband, it's his responsibility to support his wife for her sake, that he should be proud of her and her achievements and thrilled to be seeing her succeeding in, you know, with the skills that she has and, you know, that it doesn't have to be about him. We do get a moment later in the film where they're in the middle of pitched battle and uh, he tells her, you know, go on, you got this. And it's good that he has confidence in her abilities, but that's not the same thing as supporting her uh, in, you know, seeking fulfillment in in the, with the skills that she has or taking pride in her achievement. Those are two different things. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the on the bright side, though, the portrayal of uh, Mrs. Incredible, I mean, she, you know, she she's having her glory moment mm-hmm. and it's, you know, she makes a phone call at one point, you know, and she's like. I stopped an oncoming train. I stopped the railway train. You know, I had a fantastic day. Yes. <laughs> yep. And that's, you know, you you go, I would totally be exactly like that if I had had that kind of a day. You know, yep. and, I would, and my first thought would be, I want to tell somebody I love about this. You know? and, and what I love about that moment is that, you know, We've been watching Bob struggle at home, and we're now watching Elastigirl struggle with being in the field. And it would be very easy for the movie to take, like, the the sloppy, stereotyped way of having Bob, you know, have only, like, Mr. Mom bad days and make mistakes and be incompetent, while, you know, Elastigirl is totally competent and perfect and makes no mistakes in the field. That's not really the way that it happens. You know, uh, her her performance in the field is not perfect. It's certainly something to be excited about. But, you know, she makes little mistakes and and overlooks things and has and and isn't perfect. And, you know, he has his little victories at home. He stays up and learns the new math and he's down with it. Right. And um, um, he's able to uh, to set straight some things that uh, he, he didn't necessarily get right right off the bat. And. I and that to me that to me comes from a place of affection for these characters and taking them seriously yeah. um and 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 that that goes a long way for me that's not something that you see in every franchise yeah yeah and and the other the 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 other thing where he really has grown from the first movie is that he's the one that can enumerate the fact that Jack Jack has 17 different superpowers, you know, and mom is like, this is the first she heard about it, about it is like in the last three minutes of the movie. And, you know, so she was the one who was saying, you were missing this mm-hmm. uh, uh, to him in the first movie. And she missed all that. Uh, he was the one that witnessed it and, you know, figured out how to cope with it and came up with, you know, the typical, parental strategies of, you know, num num cookie for when Jack Jack goes interdimensional, you know, <laughs> and uh, you know, not the problems that most parents have, but and yet recognizably the problem that every parent has, you know, with, uh, sure. with, you know, with kids who are doing 
you know, the, there's the there's the old uh, Harvard law of animal behavior, uh, which you can modify to the Jack Jack law. You know, the law of Jack Jack behavior, which is that Jack Jack, under carefully controlled laboratory conditions, will do whatever he wants uh, <laughs> because he has superpowers. You know. <laughs> So he'll get into a fight with and, the raccoon, you know. And, and like like babies do, uh, he's kind of in flux. And you know, like you know, with with regard to language acquisition, for instance, uh, babies make all kinds of noises that crop up in all kinds of different languages. But as they listen and learn, and as they adapt to their circumstances, their brain becomes more and more set in the way of the particular language or languages that they hear every day. And so right. Jack-Jack has all of these superpowers. Uh, he's not going to have all those superpowers when he's, uh, you know, Dash's age or Violet's age. You, we can see how their manifestation of their powers has been formed by their personality and by their life circumstances. And that's that's going to happen to Jack-Jack, too. Yeah. One, one area where I think is another limitation in the film has to do with the villain. Um, the idea of this screen slaver, this villain who has contempt for the masses and the way that they live their lives vicariously, passively looking up to superheroes to save them, like looking up to, you know, mommy and daddy to save you and experiencing everything at the remove of media and not taking action on their own. I don't know. Maybe there's an Ayn Randian vibe here. Um, the this theme is technologically maybe a little undercut by that cool uh, 50s 60s setting because nobody has cell phones and you know there aren't handheld devices and people aren't um glued to the screens in their hands in the show the way in the movie in the way that they are in, in our world right but but for me the real issue here is that in comparison to syndrome who's such a vital character because he has such a vital relationship with Mr. Incredible. I just didn't really care about Screen Slaver because the, this particular villain's motives and relationship and modus operandi doesn't highlight or illuminate anything about our heroes in a way comparable to what Syndrome did for Mr. Incredible. Yeah. Uh, on the plus side, uh, it is, it is, it, that villain retains the kind of, you know, early 1960s Bond villain thing, though. Sure, absolutely. You know, with the, with the, with the hip, hypno screens and, you know, and all of that kind of thing. Um, so I enjoyed that villain. Uh, sure. I was, I, I am proud to say I, I knew who the villain was. Like almost immediately, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yep. um, and that you know that may not really be a mark of my genius. There probably are a lot of people who figured out who the villain was right away. Uh, well, and the whole secret villain trope, I think, really is is not serving Disney Pixar. I, it, it's just it's cropped up in so many movies, and they were they're relying too much on the twist and the right. reveal of. Who is the secret villain? Yeah, yeah. Do you well, want? You want to? Talk? I didn't object to that. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to ask. Um, do you want to talk about Ant Man and the Wasp? Do you have anything else you want to say about Incredibles too? Sure. No. Let Let's talk about Ant Man and the Wasp. Is that out yet? I haven't even. I'm not even sure. Um, it opens on the sixth. Okay. All right. Uh, go for it. So, um, 
I was not a huge fan of the original Ant-Man. Um, when when Ant-Man was first announced around the time that the original Avengers came out, I, I took a stand. I went on Twitter and I said, the world does not need an Ant-Man movie. Uh, and, and by the and time the world and, said, we don't care what you think. <laughs> well, what, what I, I felt that it was kind of, you know, going to the dregs of the Marvel Universe, like Captain America, Iron Man, Thor. These are, you know, characters with mythologies and characters whose stories, you know, have a certain weight to them. Is Ant-Man really? But Ant-Man, I'll tell is, you, Ant-Man is the P.G. Woodhouse character of the... <laughs> Well, especially but, played by Ma- Paul Rudd, you know. By the time Ant-Man came out, I was feeling like you know, we could use a little bit more small scale, uh, <laughs> not, That's you know. As small as it gets, man. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I, it it kind of let me down um, for a number of reasons, and, and one of them was that it had that kind of middle movie feel that so many Marvel movies have that you usually don't have it at first. Mm-hmm. But this is a middle movie that gives us a world in which there's already been an Ant-Man, the original Ant-Man, Hank Pym, played by Michael Douglas. And and so Scott Lang, uh, the Paul Rudd character, is going to be the new Ant-Man. And so we've got two Ant-Mans, and yet we're somehow between wasps. Because the original wasp, Janet Van Dyne, is lost in the quantum realm, and then the new wasp, the wasp to be, Hope Van Dyne, the daughter of um, of the original Ant Man and the original Wasp, uh, played by Evangeline Lilly, uh, she's kind of just waiting on the sidelines, being irritated at Paul Rudd and wanting to go into action, and I'm sitting there in the theater wanting her to go into action, uh-huh. and now she finally does, and okay. and she she brings a lot to the party, and. Um, the movie dispenses even more with the kind of usual Marvel plot mechanics, and we've got to have a villain who's like the the flip side of the hero who has the same powers, but more so. And um, it's it's really having fun in a way that I haven't seen. I don't know. Um, I, I, I feel like a Marvel movie hasn't taken itself this lightly since the original Guardians of the Galaxy, and then I, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I, I love it when they when they don't go all Wagnerian. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I'm looking forward to this. I, I enjoyed the first one, and it was, you know, it, it yeah, it was a movie that didn't take itself too seriously. I particularly like what what's the guy's name? The Latino guy, Michael. Michael Pena. Michael Pena. I love yes. that character. Yes. I was like, I want more of that guy in this story just because I love those fantastic uh, he, sh- he said, she said voiceover things. Yeah. We, we only get one of the he said, she said voiceovers, but he is in the movie and it is a lot of fun. Um, you know, the thing that I enjoyed the most about the first Ant-Man was the sense that on some level it was – uh, successor in spirit to the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids movies. Okay, that's you know, fair enough. It starts out in a bathtub and it winds up in the daughter's uh, in, in the daughter's bedroom. <laughs> yeah, and this movie is much more so. I okay, mean, it's it's almost really just a comedy about playing with scale, and they use they use smallness and bigness in all kinds of very creative ways, and sometimes the technology doesn't work right, and, yeah. <laughs> and Scott Lang is not exactly the size that he'd like to be. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I, I, uh, 
I, I'm totally looking forward to that one. That's that's going to be great fun. You know, um, you mentioned you mentioned superhero movies going Wagnerian, and I just uh-huh. want to say there was one superhero movie that a lot of people enjoyed for what they perceived as its lightheartedness that I thought really needed to go Wagnerian and didn't. And do you know what I'm talking about? I do not. Go ahead. Thor Ragnarok. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're gonna be you're doing Ragnarok. You're doing the fall of the, the Twilight of the Gods. The, the fall of the Gods. And it, it's supposed to have some weight and some some grandeur and a sense of tragedy to it. And the movie <laughs> then found you get, a, then you get Jeff Goldblum saying, "Okay, that was pretty. That was a, that's a t- we'll call that a tie." Yeah. <laughs> And that's kind of it, you know. Even even at the at, at the at the pivotal moment when Thor is watching Asgard go down in flames, he says, "My God, what have I done?" And I I flash back at that moment to the similar corresponding scene in Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, where Kirk destroys the Enterprise in order to defeat the Klingons, and he watches the Enterprise fall burning out of the sky, and he says, my God, Bones, what have I done? And in Star Trek III, that's a powerful moment, because we care about the Enterprise. It it means something to our heroes, and it means something to us. And in Thor Ragnarok, as, as Thor watches Asgard go down in flames, my God, what have I done? And Heimdall turns to him and says, Hey, it doesn't really matter. Asgard's a people, not a place. So, I, I, I just, I, I, so, so there was a movie where I felt we really needed some Wagnerian depth, and and here in Ant Man and the Wasp, um, there's there's no need for that. At yeah. all. <laughs> yeah, right. It's just, yeah, it's, it's, this is just a, that's, that is the, uh, that's going to be a total popcorn movie. You know, you're not going to be at the end thinking. And by the way, uh, I think we're far enough into uh, movie history now that everybody is, who cares about Infinity War has seen it. Um, my My son was complaining about it, you know, because what a downer. Yes. And why did Doctor Strange do this terrible thing? That's and I'm the like, only way. well, and I'm like, you realize that he's the only person that knows which alternative universe will work out, right? Oh, he, so I was like, <laughs> oh yeah, he. I okay, all right, all right, I forgive him. You know, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> on on that note, let me just mention that Ant Man and the Wasp takes place shortly before the events of um, Avengers Infinity War, but there is a mid-credits sequence that ties into it, and so if you don't want to walk out of Ant-Man with that downer feeling, okay. just leave as soon as the movie's over and the credits start to roll. I, I saw <laughs> Ant-Man and the Wasp with my I always, stay for the, I always stay for the Marvel Easter eggs. I always Yes, do. well, everybody everybody does, but this is one case where you might want to make an exception. I, I saw the original Ant-Man and then Ant-Man and the Wasp with my now 15-year-old daughter, Anna, and she has proclaimed Ant-Man to be her favorite superhero. Um, but it took me quite a while to talk her down from that mid-credits. <laughs> I, okay, I can pretty much guess what's going to happen to them then. <laughs> 
bummer. Okay. Yeah, yeah, but but it's a lot of fun until then. Well, and they'll all be back when they, you know, release the resolution of Infinity War and everything is brought back to relatively hunky-dory status. Although it's I guess guessing they're going to kill permanently kill off at least a couple of characters. Perhaps Ant-Man and the Wasp. I don't know. But uh, anyway, uh, Fallen Kingdom. We we got just yes. a, a few minutes here before we're going to wind things up, but I wanted to get your take on Fallen Kingdom, Jurassic Park Fallen Kingdom. Right. So, um, well, this is really a movie that has no reason to exist, right? I mean, <laughs> it's just just kind of lumbering forward on, on brand momentum at this point. But, right. but I do want to say this is a franchise that got started originally. It was It was based in two of the most primal emotions that the movies can instill us with awe and terror. Right. Right. Yeah. Wow. Dinosaurs. Ah, dinosaurs. Right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, right. That's basically the whole movie in a nutshell. And, right. and you, you can only do that once or twice. And, and then suddenly you need some kind of plot to be about, you know, the, what it is that, why Why do we need another movie with these dinosaurs? Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, you get, well, as is famously said, you know, you get, ooh, ah, uh, you know, but then there's running and screaming. Right. Okay. And the ooh and the ah only go so far, and the running and the screaming only go so far, and, and then, and then, and then something what? more, yeah. Right. So we've got a story with paramilitary people and an uh, uh, underground market and all kinds of plot. Um, most of all, I think the, the two things that stand out to me about this movie. Well, first of all, look, just let me say one thing. Um, the film is, is directed by Jay, um, Bayona, who is the director of a very well-regarded Spanish language horror movie called The Orphanage. Okay. Um, he also did a, uh, English language disaster film called The Impossible. This man has an eye and there are images, beautiful images in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Um, Even some, tra- some st- I mean, the trailer, you know, with the volcano blowing up and, you know, the dinosaurs fleeing toward the cliff, That it's a gorgeous shot. There's some stuff that's really worth looking at in the movie. Okay. Um, but... In the first place, the movie is really conflicted about the whole relation, the human relationship with dinosaurs. On the one hand, there's the the preservationist, you know, these are living creatures and, and, you know, we, we owe it to ourselves or to the planet or to them to keep them around, to try to preserve them um, or, you know, the bad guys want to exploit them. But then there's also this deep antipathy regarding the relationship with human beings in terms of, well, you know, if we're stupid enough to bring them back, then maybe we deserve to go extinct. And, um, you know, do we, is it right to let the dinosaurs die and preserve the human race? Or do we treat the dinosaurs as our equals and imperil human life? And the movie is really conflicted about this. And 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 that's, and the problem for me, the problem mm-hmm. about that is that I fundamentally cannot suspend when when Jeff 
Goldblum intones that, you know, the dinosaurs were here before us, and if we're not careful, they may be here after us. No, they won't. There's not that many of them. I mean, are you afraid of crocodiles taking over the earth? I'm not. <laughs> I'm just not. And it's, that's my problem is I cannot suspend disbelief for one second to think that dinosaurs are going to conquer the human race. Right. Um, well, and and you're going to have a really hard time with the ending of this movie, which is not even the ending of this movie. It's really the beginning of the next movie, the next because movie. that's that's what every see. This is this is the, the poison of the Marvel Cinematic Universe for, uh, methodology. Everything wants to be this ongoing story. Everything is aspiring to the condition of television. Right. You know, they, 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 they don't want you to leave the theater satisfied with what you've seen. They want you to leave the theater anticipating the next movie, which is right. not the same thing. Well, you know, and this brings me back to, you know, a point that I was making earlier. I think that the next Jurassic Park film should just be called Jurassic Park, the sixth one. Uh, you know uh, because uh, yeah you're right and there you know they they did this with infinity war of course Mm -hmm. you know and um my bet is sooner or later the jurassic park because okay we've you know the 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 original premise of jurassic park was uh We've mastered cloning dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like the obvious next step will be we've mastered cloning. Uh, and, you know, from there you're going to get, you know, species mixing and dino man, uh, you know, and that kind of thing. And, and, uh, at that point, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's, you know, you have jumped the shark, you know, when you start having the, the dinosaur men and, you know, women. And, and admittedly, you could raise interesting questions, you know, once you started mixing human DNA into other species DNA, you know, at what point are we talking about people? Right. Well, and that, I think that would be more interesting than what they do here. Because mm-hmm. if you remember in the last movie, the first designer dinosaur that they created, it was called the um, Indominus Rex. Indominus Rex. Right. And it was, you know, it was some Tyrannosaur in there and some other stuff thrown in there. And then More comes the big, <laughs> then then the big reveal comes in. We've mixed in some Velociraptor. And I was like, what? Like what? that's supposed why to explain why this do is- that. No, I mean, I, I just, I took it for granted that, that, that there was Velociraptor, and Velociraptor is one of the most popular ones. Right. But this dinosaur was supposed to be so smart, I thought maybe there was something mammalian in there, and maybe uh. even human. I thought, I thought they were going to go for something more transgressive. This time, they've got the Indoraptor, which is the next generation Indominus, but with more raptor. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Can you not think of anything scarier than more raptor? There were I mean, other dinosaurs. You know, there were hundreds of species of dinosaurs. Right, um, and there, you know, then what happens if you give the skill and the the power and and the um uh, ferocity of a dinosaur, and then you give it the intelligence of something, you know, something even more intelligent? Yeah, you know, like human DNA. Sure. Because it, it just it, it just seems like. 
so, you know, if you're if you're going to be a mad scientist, then you know, go full mad scientist. Absolutely, that was my problem with this. Yeah, and, well, and, one of my problems. Uh, yeah. So. so well, but I I will still go see it because it has big monsters, and plus I thought some of the some of the images from the trailer were gorgeous, and I want to see those on a big screen. And there's uh, a very very funny sequence of Chris Pratt. I'm not going to say running from lava, but trying to get away from lava. Okay. I, see, and and frankly, you know, uh, Chris Pratt is one of those guys that um, I'll go see him in pretty much anything because, uh, first of all, he's my neighbor. He's from right up the road from me oh. uh, in a little town called Lake Stevens. Uh, and he periodically oh. shows up in town and does nice things because he just seems like a nice guy. And, uh, you know, by the way, you know, just totally off the subject of the movies, but uh, they had him on the MTV Awards, and he, yes. he gave this really strange, like, evangelistic homily that mm-hmm. involved, you know, God is real, and be sure and pray, and then threw in something about using the toilet because he's talking to the MTV audience. But, I mean... Clearly, the guy. It was it was a very strange moment of evangelization that I thought, yes. good for you, you know. <laughs> well done, Chris Pratt. You know, so uh, Washington boy there, and uh, proud of him. So, uh, right. well, I I think we have uh, we've come to the end of our hour, and I want to thank you for being on the show today, Steve. You're always fun. And uh, now I've got, you know, something to look forward to with uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp. So that'll mm-hmm. be cool. And uh, we will be uh, uh, back again uh, at uh, some point in the future, probably in about a week or so. But until then, uh, have a wonderful Fourth of July. And God bless all of you. And God bless you, Steve Gradonis. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Mark. God bless you, too. Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... We want to help others, especially in places of strife, such as the Holy Land, where Christianity is dwindling by the day. But how to help? Here's an easy way. Buying products through the Holy Land gift shop. Every product you purchase at myfranciscan.org slash shop helps Christians support their families and stay in the Holy Land. Olive wood, embroidery, spices, and many more authentic products from the Holy Land are available right now at myfranciscan.org slash shop. The Holy Land Gift Shop, bringing the Holy Land home. Thank you for listening to Breadbox Media. Find more about us at breadboxmedia.com.